0: Good morning. It's really good to be with you this morning. I'm uh, Gary Manning, and uh, we've been coming here for over nine years now, and uh, so it's always a privilege when I get to speak from up here, and especially to talk about the Gospel of John, one of my favorite books of the Bible. I'm really excited to do that. Let me pray and get us started this morning. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these people here uh, each of us, we have no idea how much you love the person sitting next to us, and uh, Lord, what a, a privilege to be uh, among so many people that are so deeply loved by you. Uh, this morning, as we begin our series on the Gospel of John, I pray that you would uh, just cause us to, be, um, to receive the testimony of the Gospel of John, to accept this and to learn from it, and I, <clears throat> I pray that you would, your spirit would be at work in each of us, um, helping us to receive the truths here and to respond to Jesus in the way that you intended. Um, Bless our time in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Gospel of John, I was... um, I was really excited when Pastor Robert asked me to do the intro sermon. So today, I'm not going to look at any one passage. I'm going to talk about the whole book of John, kind of try to give you a big picture. So, as soon as he said, Will you do the opening? I said, Yes, of course. And it wasn't until later that I realized that this week, uh, so I, I'm a professor at Biola, and uh, so my grades were due a few days ago, um, and my semester starts tomorrow, and next. Monday, my oldest son is getting married. Woohoo. So he's the one who's often tall, handsome one playing guitar over here. He's not here today. I think he must have found out I was preaching or something. But anyway, so really busy time. Of course, then I realize after a while, as the wedding gets close, that I realize that the only person who is more useless to the wedding than the groom is the father of the groom. You know, like, <laughs> so I, there's no stress on me at all. I just, I just have to pick out my tie. Um but I think my wife will pick that out too, so (laughs) nothing to do, you know. Um, So Robert asked me to do this because I kind of specialize in the Gospel of John. You may know that that Bible professors kind of specialize in some part of the Bible, and so... Ken Birding was up here introducing Ephesians last year because he specializes in, uh, in Paul's letters especially, and Charlie Trim is up here often for Old Testament stuff because he specializes in everything in the Old Testament and all of its background, um, and, uh, and uh, Alan Holtberg has been up here because he specializes in surfing and rock climbing and... Uh, just kidding. Actually, he is a very high-quality scholar in the Book of Revelation, but I have to give him a hard time. <clears throat> so, um, and I've just for many years have specialized in the Gospels and especially the Gospel of John. And so, it's, it's it's a privilege to try to say here's what the whole Gospel of John is about in just this little while. Now, I have a bunch of people in here who took a Gospel of John class from me at Biola. So raise your hand. I'm going to embarrass you. I mean, I'm not going to embarrass you. Okay. In one word, what's John about? Woo-hoo, okay, you get to keep your A grade from last semester. (laughs) It's about Jesus, okay, in case you didn't hear that. (laughs) We're done, okay, let's go. (laughs) Well, if you ask people about their favorite verse, there's a good chance they're going to say John 3.16, or at least it's the best known verse, right? John 3.16, wonderful verse where God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? Some people only know that verse from this, right? John three six. Does that still happen at football games? I don't know. Um, if you're old enough, you may remember that there was often a particular guy in the end zone who wore a rainbow-colored wig, and he went to every game he could, and he held up that sign. He's, I think, he's the guy who got started. More recent years, Tim Tebow has it written, had it written under his, uh, in his, eye, what do you call that stuff? I was gonna say eyeshadow, but they probably don't like it being called eyeshadow. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> There's a uh, There's a story that circulates just about every presidential election. Um, Sometimes I feel sorry for people running for president. Not usually, but sometimes I feel sorry for them because they get plastered with all these questions and they have to pretend like they they agree with everybody, sort of, and so a question that's often asked them is like, what's your favorite part of the Bible? And so um, supposedly um, Al Gore, back when he was running for president, somebody asked him, what's your favorite verse of the Bible? And he he thought of John 3.16, but he said John 16.3 instead. And John 16.3 is talking about people persecuting Christians, and it says... (laughs) they will do the, this, they will do these things because they have not known the father or the uh, or me <laughs> Uh, so I looked it up to see if he actually said that, and then some people said, yes, I was there, and other people said, no. Some people said, no, George Bush did it, you know, years before that. And other people said, Obama did it. So I have a feeling nobody ever actually did it. It's one of those myths that circulate on the internet or, you know, in, before the internet, um, that it just, you know, it, it's the sort of mistake somebody might make. Now, my own favorite verse from the Gospel of John <clears throat> is depicted by this one here. Um, I don't know if you knew that Jesus uh, had a Honda. Um, and the reason you don't know about it is because he didn't talk about it. Um, he never spoke about his Honda because uh, he said, um, for I did not speak of my own accord. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, his, his disciples were just really wonderful followers of Jesus because the book of Acts tells us that they were all in one accord. That must have been, I don't know how you fit 12 apostles in one accord, but they somehow did. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've started on a reading plan yet, if you're doing a reading plan to get through the, uh, through the Bible, and, and there's all sorts of wonderful reading plans. I've, I've tried lots of reading plans for the month of January. Um, and... <laughs> After that, it's sort of whatever I feel like reading. Um, but here, I, I would just want to suggest one that has actually been the most, for me, it's been the most profitable reading plan I've ever done, but it focuses in not on trying to get the whole thing, but to really spend time in one part of the Bible. So here's what I've done i take one book of the Bible, and I usually have done this with a small book, like one of the, like Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians, real short, and I read all the way through it in one morning, kind of quickly. I mean, they're not very long. I just read the whole thing, not trying to figure everything out, just get the big picture. And the next day, I read the same thing. And the next day, I read the same thing. And I do that for 30 days. I'll, I'll tell you the truth, by day 15, I am absolutely sick of that book. <laughs> okay? But a few more days, and I begin to think, wow, I've been reading this every day, and I've been hearing this stuff all my life, and reading it all my life, but it's really I'm understanding things, and I'm seeing things I never saw before. Now with a book like the book of John, it's a little big, so when I've tackled books like that, I'll do like half in one day, 10 chapters in one day, and then 11 chapters in the next, and go back and forth, back and forth for 30 days. Or if that's too much, you could say I'm going to do you know, uh, seven chapters, seven chapters, seven chapters, then go back to the beginning. And it is amazing how, um, rather than just trying to get through everything, which is also a great goal, you just stay in one part of the Bible for 30 days and it begins to soak into you. And if you haven't picked a reading plan already, I'd encourage you to try that, maybe with your favorite book, or since we're going through John this year, um, for a good chunk of this year, that would be a a good place to try that. Do seven chapters a day, or ten chapters a day, and then restart, and you'll be amazed at how much you learn, and how much the Gospel of John sinks into you. Well, to try to cover everything about the Gospel of John, obviously we're not going to do that today, but I wanted to ask some big questions that will help us as you read John as you hear the sermons in John help you to kind of see the big picture of the gospel of John. So I decided to have seven questions about the gospel of John. Actually, I don't know if it's seven questions. I didn't count, but everything in John is supposed to be seven, you know, seven this, seven that. So I'm just going to say it's seven questions and you can count and see if I actually do seven questions. So <clears throat> So first question, what's the gospel? what is a gospel? By the way, some of my, I won't describe all my pictures, but a lot of them are pictures from old Bibles. So this is the first page of a thousand-year-old Bible, the first page of the Gospel of John from a thousand-year-old Bible. Beautiful picture of John uh, writing, uh, writing his gospel. So so what is a gospel? Well, we all kind of know the first answer to what is a gospel is that it's good news, right? The word gospel just means good news. So when Matthew and Mark and Luke and John called their books, they called it a gospel, they meant, I'm giving you good news. This is good news. And they probably picked that because John the Baptist had preached good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus, when he came, said, good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. There was good news that God was starting his plan of inaugurating the kingdom of God on earth. That's good news. So, When we say the gospel according to John, we're saying this is John's good news about Jesus, his good news about what Jesus comes to bring. But a gospel is not, before they wrote, it wasn't a thing. If you said, hey, I'm going to write a gospel, people would have said, what do you mean you're going to write a gospel? Nobody writes a gospel. A gospel is good news, right? So what is a gospel? Um, What what were they writing? the, the, The contents were good news, but the thing they were writing, and I think this is really helpful, is to realize that they were writing biographies, When Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, when they sat down to write, they were consciously saying, I'm going to write a biography of Jesus. And if you lived back then, and you picked it up and started reading, you'd say, yeah, this is a biography. It feels kind of like other biographies I've read. It has the same structure, the same basic feel of a biography. And if you lived back then, you might have read a biography of a king, a Caesar, a general, a philosopher, a great teacher. You might have read biographies like that. Now, you might be thinking, really? It doesn't seem much like biographies that I'm familiar with, because I I remember reading a review of a, maybe a couple years ago, of a new biography about Abraham Lincoln that was a thousand pages, you know? That's what we think of a biography as a huge book that gives us absolutely everything that can possibly be known about that person. But back then, John and Matthew and Mark and Luke were writing biographies the same way that people around them were familiar with, which means fairly short the length of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is about the length of a lot of ancient biographies. Another, just, there's a number of ways this helps. Is, have you ever thought, hey, what was going on for 30 years? Jesus is born, and then Mark, fast forward, he's getting baptized. What happened? They're covering something up. Jesus was doing something mysterious. He went to America during those years. No, he didn't do that, okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, this is what anybody rating back then would have said, that doesn't surprise me because that's how their biographies read too. I've read quite a few of these ancient biographies written back then, and they skipped everything until the f- person started to do something in public. So a biography of a general would start, after some little introductory material, would start with the first battle, the first time this person was a soldier a uh, biography of a, a politician, a king, a Caesar, would start with that person's first public office. So what do the, the four Gospels do? Mostly, they start with Jesus' public ministry. A few little stories before then, but they don't spend a lot of time on anything before that. Now, here's something interesting, though, where John is a little different, okay? Matthew says, let me start with family history, genealogy. Luke says, let me tell you some stories, some cool stories about the, what, what surrounded Jesus' conception and birth. Mark says, I'm gonna skip forward to, straight to the... Uh, to Jesus' baptism, John says, I'm gonna start with Jesus' baptism, but my first verse is in the beginning, you see, to tell the biography of Jesus is a little bit of a different story, you don't start at his birth, John says, I'm gonna go back to in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God before creation, so a biography of Jesus is a little bit of a different thing, yes, you may start the storyline with the baptism of Jesus, but John says, I'm gonna start with the dawn of creation because that's where the story of Jesus begins. So they are biographies. But, and so because they're biographies, they have careful history. Okay, so they're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said, we're going to, we are eyewitnesses or they relied on eyewitnesses like Luke. So we're gonna tell the story accurately, carefully. We wanna make sure people know the truth about Jesus. But here's what else is really important. These guys were not just the facts kind of people. They they wanted to get the facts across, but it wasn't just the facts. You see what was John doing before he wrote the Gospel of John? He probably wrote the Gospel of John maybe 85 the year 85 or 90 perhaps, not 1985 or 90 for, you know, 85, okay? Jesus died in the 30s. So what has John been doing for 50 something years before he writes the Gospel of John? Well, he's been a pastor. And an evangelist. He has been preaching and ministering for fifty-something years. So that means that John doesn't see him first himself first as an author. He is a pastor. He has a pastor's heart. You know, when a pastor tells you a story, they have a point to it, right? They want to get something across to you. So when John picks out these stories to tell us, he says, "I've got a point." I have a pastoral point. I, I'm ministering to Christians. I'm an evangelist. so I have, a point, I have points that I want to share with people don't, who don't yet know Jesus. Um, this is all for, I, sometimes when I'm teaching, I think of them as Pastor Mark and Pastor Matthew, Pastor Luke and Pastor John. These guys, if we were around them, they would be caring about our souls and they probably wouldn't define themselves first as authors because most of their lives were spent ministering to the people of God and preaching the gospel. So they are biographies, but they are They're both careful and they're pastoral, both accurate and pastoral. Okay, so that's what a gospel is. But why a fourth one? Do you ever get that feeling? You ever hear, it happens where you have a favorite movie and then somebody announces they're gonna do a remake? You're like, no, no, don't do it. Just, I don't know if you followed this, last year, somebody said they were gonna do a remake of Princess Bride. And of course, the first thing I thought of was inconceivable. <laughs> it was already perfect. <laughs> Don't try. <laughs> and fortunately, Wesley weighed in and said the same thing. Don't do this. Don't touch this movie. Um, I wonder if people were thinking that in the 80s. or They, they have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and they're familiar with these stories. They've been hearing them. Um, since the church began. They've been hearing the stories of Jesus and eventually they read them written down and they're thinking, why? We already have three. It's perfectly good. Why one more? Why are we doing a remake of the story of Jesus? So why four? Maybe the answer was, uh, it was this. <clears throat> Matthew, Mark, and Luke, see me after class. Your book reports are surprisingly similar. <laughs> there's, there's a huge overlap in the first three and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, they, uh, uh, they're remarkably similar. By the way, just some interesting statistics. Um, 80% of the content of the Gospel of Mark shows up in Matthew. And very often it's in the same words, in the same order. Very, very close, huge overlap. And between Mark and Luke, it's 65%. If you compare Mark and John, only 8%, tiny fraction of Mark, shows up in John. So John is doing something different, okay? And I think that's part of the answer why a fourth Gospel, um, well he's writing after all the others and I think this isn't necessarily what everybody would think but I think he wants to fill in the gaps, so to speak um, I think he knows and his, the people that he's ministering to they know the other gospels or at least they know all the stories I mean Paul when he wrote his epistles he's already talking about the, some of the stories of Jesus even though there's no gospels written yet when Paul was writing those letters so the stories are well known John says we're now 30 years later there's some other things I want to tell you not that Matthew, Mark, and Luke got it wrong, but there's some other things I want to get across to you. Um, you sometimes we get the idea that these were people living in you know, little tiny huts and, squal- and squalor in the mud, and they were uneducated, and we have this idea that they were absolutely like cavemen, and it's really not true. Did you know in the first century you could publish a book Formally publish it, send it to a publishing house, and you could count on people across the Roman Empire eventually reading that book. If 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 you put enough into getting it across there, people wrote letters to each other across the Mediterranean, talking about books that they had written and wrote, and they could expect that somebody across the for them across the world had read their own books. Authors could do that. So I'm pretty sure that in the Christian as Christians spread throughout around the Mediterranean that they could read each other's stuff. That's, Paul could send letters across much of the Roman Empire to somebody and expect it to get there. So I'm pretty sure when Matthew finished Matthew, it quickly went to lots of churches. And so as John is writing in the 80s or the 90s, they all know the stories. So he says, you know what? We have some, some other questions that have arisen in the last 30 years that I want to focus on. And I think the main thing is he wants to focus on a central question. Who is Jesus? The, other, the first three Gospels talk about that, but John says people have started to wonder about the identity of Jesus. They've maybe started to speculate a little bit. They've started to wrestle, I think, already with how is he human and God? They're struggling with how those two things go together. And so John has been preaching for years. He's probably been telling stories of Jesus for 50 years and explaining them to people. So by the time he sits down to write John, he has that 50 years of preaching about Jesus and about his words and about his deeds that inform how he presents his gospel. And I think as a result, it's incredibly artistic. Not only artistic, but beautiful, but also he's able to focus on The identity of Jesus. He actually kind of tells us this at the end in John 20, 31. He tells us why he writes. He says, there are so many stories I could have picked. I could have picked out all these different things. The world couldn't fit the libraries if we wrote down everything, but these are written. I've picked out these so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John says, I've got a different point not one that contradicts the other people, but I'm a pastor, I'm Pastor John, I'm gonna tell you something about Jesus that you need to know. Okay, so we can see why here, let's talk a little bit about who he is. So the next question is, who was John, okay? Who was this guy? There he is, painting from the 1100s, I think. Um, So we know his family, okay? He's the son of Zebedee, he's the brother of James, so they're introduced in the other Gospels, James and John, the fishermen, their father uh, Owns some fishing boats, zebedee. We know their mother, mom Zilla. Actually, we don't know her name, but you remember the story, right? Mom comes along to Jesus and says, "I want you to get my two sons here, and they need to have first and second place in the kingdom when you come into your kingdom." Um, so, uh, so he had parents who who were faithful. They they they. Uh, James and John were faithfully trying to obey God even before Jesus showed up, and when Jesus showed up and called them to be disciples, they dropped everything, and they followed him. They became disciples of Jesus, among the very first disciples of Jesus. So we know about his family. Um, We know he was one of the 12 apostles, and actually, in some sections of the Gospels, you'll find that just three people do something in particular, and those three are always Peter, James, and John, who are sometimes called the inner circle, so John is part of that inner circle. He's the author of, most likely, five New Testament books. Okay, so John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the Epistles, and Revelation. Throughout history, some people have said maybe Revelation is written by a different person named John. Um, I think there's pretty good reasons to believe it's the same John. Um, <clears throat> but, so he's the author of these books. Um, he, uh, At the time he writes, he, he calls himself the Elder, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the elder to the churches of Ephesus. He seems to be have this position of elder over not just one church, but he has authority over multiple churches in Ephesus. Um, and he's trying to keep good teaching, correct teaching, and keep those churches healthy in the 80s and the 90s. So that's kind of his, his resume. Um, that's his... Uh, Um, That's the time when he's, uh, those are the things he does. But interestingly, in the Gospel of John, he focuses, he doesn't talk about those things. He's trying to keep himself in the background. He doesn't want to present himself as being important in the story because Jesus is the important one. But when he does show up in the Gospel of John, he focuses on two things. Here's the first thing he says, I'm an eyewitness. I was there. An eyewitness is so important, right? Who's going to believe this crazy stuff? Well, we have eyewitnesses. We have people who were there who saw it. So he, at the, the very last few verses of the uh, the book, he's, he says, this is the disciple who bears witness. He was there. He saw it. Uh, at the cross, um, at the death of Jesus, again, he says, he is the witness. He saw these things, and he is testifying, and you can trust him. He's the witness um, he wants to make sure that he is a faithful witness to Jesus. Kind of witness in the courtroom sense of like, I was there, I will hold up my hands, I will swear to tell the whole truth, and I will tell you that I saw Jesus do these things. I saw him die, and I saw him rose from the dead. I will testify to that. And John has spent the last 50 years before he wrote this testifying to the truth. He has been a faithful witness to Jesus. That is a central part of who John thinks he is, is I'm a witness so he he looked at Jesus. But here's the second cool thing. The other way he identifies himself is loved by Jesus. He looked at Jesus and he was loved by Jesus. He's sometimes called the beloved disciple because three, four times near the end of the Gospel of John, he says, the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, he ran to the tomb. The other disciple, the one who leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper, the one that Jesus loved. So it's kind of funny sometimes you think, well, you know, is this how John talks with the other disciples? Well, I'm I'm the one that Jesus loves, you know. (laughs) I'm the one who leaned against Jesus. I'm better than the others, you know. Is that what he means? I I don't think so. You know, we'll get there later in the year into that section of John. I think he means, I don't even want to say my name in the scene because I'm not the important one. I'm just going to say I'm somebody that Jesus loves. That's who I am. He defines himself as a person loved by Jesus. And there's other people in, in the Gospel of John who are also called loved by Jesus. And of course, Jesus loves all of us. But John, more important than being the author of these incredible books, more important than being the elder over all these churches in Ephesus, all these things he's accomplished, what's most important to him is Jesus loves him. Isn't that amazing that he defines himself as somebody who is loved by Jesus? And I think that's one of the big, one of the amazing lessons to learn. From the Gospel of John is how he defined himself. Well, do we really know he wrote it? Um, so, if you watch any sort of documentary about Christianity or the Bible, you shouldn't, because <laughs> they tend to only interview people who are you know total skeptics. They won't interview scholars who actually um, believe anything in the scripture. That's not quite true, but it's often true. Um, but, all, but it's really common for them to say, oh, well, we don't really know who wrote this. It was written by some later Christian who really wasn't wasn't there." Um, And I just want to let you know, we actually have some pretty good reasons, some historical reasons to know, yes, it actually is this John, John the son of Zebedee, the apostle, one of the 12 apostles, he actually did write this book. He is an eyewitness to Jesus, and he wrote this down. We have some great reasons to believe that. Um, Here's one of them. So the Bible, of course, was passed down in written form for a very long time before the printing press. We have some very old manuscripts, written copies of, uh, of John that go way back, and every single one that we have at the top of the page, it always says, the gospel according to John. So when somebody writes a book today and they publish it, they always put a title on it. Without fail, they put a title on it. That's nothing new. It turns out, if you go back to the first century, when people wrote books, they always put titles on their books. No exceptions that we're aware of. So that's the title John put on it, is the gospel according to John. Just so you know I'm not making this up, here's one of those. This is from the 200s, and I know you can all read it very clearly. <laughs> okay, let's be fair. It's over 1,800 years old, and it's in Greek, too. So, <laughs> But it says right there, gospel according to John. This is the oldest, full, almost full copy of John that we have. Um, and it says the, the gospel according to John. There actually is a fragment of John that's the oldest section of the New Testament from the mid-100s, but it's like the size of a business card because the rest of it rotted away. This is the oldest complete one from the 200s. Here's another one. This is from the 300s, and that says, Gospel according to John. Another one from the 300s says, According to John. And here's another one from the uh, 400s that says, according to John. So this is not something people just made up later to try to make the gospel believable. It goes back to ancient history that everybody who made copies of this said, well, yeah, of course, this is written by John. And that was the common knowledge back then. Not only that, but all the early witnesses, okay? The church fathers is the term we use to describe pastors and leaders and scholars of the, of the church right after the apostles, okay? Whenever they talked about this book, they said it was written by John, and whenever they bothered to specify, they said the Elder John or the Apostle John, which is a reference to the same person. So we have actual full-text sermons from the second century, would you believe, and letters that pastors wrote between each other, and they talked about this. They said, this is written by the Apostle John. That's really good historical evidence. That's not just making it up because we want it to be true. One of my favorite uh, just little pieces of evidence there is, uh, there we go, Um, so John had kind of a disciple, the Apostle John, uh, named Polycarp, okay? He was born somewhere around probably the 70s, okay? Um, and um, he had a disciple named Irenaeus. Polycarp didn't write anything that survives, as far as I know. Am I, no, am I wrong about that? No, you, you study Polycarp. Yeah, okay, sorry, sorry, Ken. <laughs> uh, Polycarp didn't talk about this issue. That's what, I'm, what I should have been saying. Irenaeus says, I remember Polycarp. I remember him really well. Near the end of Irenaeus' Irenaeus's life, he said, I can picture the spot where he preached and I can remember his sermons. And I remember one of the things he used to say is that I learned from John. I learned from the eyewitnesses. Can you imagine being around back then and you actually would know older people who had seen Jesus and they were personal? Wouldn't that be amazing? So we have this kind of very direct connection um, that, uh, they were, um, that uh, people who were around at the time this was written said, yes, this is written uh, by John. John. So we can really believe this is not something we're making up. Um, This really was written by John, the eyewitness. How is John different from other gospels? Okay, so I just want to lay out a couple of ways that you're going to notice if you read through John as you listen to sermons that John, here's why John wrote the fourth one. He says, I'm going to do something different. And here's some of the things he did. First thing is he talks about signs rather than miracles. Now the signs are miracles, but he uses the word signs. Never uses the word miracle. Why is that? a sign is a pointer, right? That seems to be what John is doing. He says, when you read one of the miracles I describe, it's focusing on who Jesus is. Now, what do I mean by that? If you go over to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell lots of miracle stories, right? But there's usually two things that arise as they tell the the miracle story. One is compassion, right? Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched the leper. Moved with compassion over and over again, okay? So, They tell their miracle stories to emphasize Jesus' compassion. And the second is power. The power of the Spirit was upon Jesus to do miracles. The power of the kingdom was there so that he could expel demons. The power of Jesus. God's power was working through Jesus. Now, John writes later, and he would agree. He would say, yeah, that's true, but that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick out seven miracles, and my point is not that Jesus was compassionate, true enough, not that he was powerful, but let me talk about how that, if you look carefully at that miracle, it points to his identity. Here's a good example. Chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. That story is in all four Gospels. But in John, right after that, the next day, Jesus begins preaching that he is the bread from heaven. The miracle was not just supposed to show love or fill their bellies, and it was supposed to do that, but more than that, it was supposed to make them think, who is Jesus, Jesus is the bread of God, the source of life that comes from God and comes down to us. Over and over again, the miracles of Jesus point to something more than the power and even the compassion. With the blind man in John chapter nine, Jesus heals the blind man, and what does he say right after he starts the healing process? He says, I am the light of the world. So as this blind man sees light for the first time, we're supposed to think about the fact that coming to Jesus means receiving the light seeing the world for the first time, seeing the truth for the first time. So, uh, so that we have these signs, and we have fewer of them. There's more attention on fewer miracles. John says, I'm just going to pick out seven, probably seven, depends on how you count them, okay? Um, I'm just going to pick these out, and I'm going to make them kind of long. And I'm going to surround them. I'm gonna, you're going to get to see things that you didn't know before, conversations with people, sermons from Jesus that help you see that every one of these signs points to the identity of Jesus, in the Gospel of John, there is less about how to live the life, live the Christian life, and more about who Jesus is. So, Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, all about how to live the Christian life, right? Um, that's, that Jesus' uh, ministry was filled with teachings about how to please God, um, how to be a kingdom citizen. John skips those. Why? Everybody knows them already, okay? They know these pretty well. Pre- people are probably reciting the Sermon on the Mount by this point. John says, I'm not going to do that, because you already know that. I'm going to focus on belief in Jesus. So if you read the sermons of Jesus and John, you don't get any commands. Here's a fascinating one. Read through John looking for commands for what to do, and you, you kind of get implied commands for believe, 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 understand. It isn't until John 15, Jesus' last night, that you get the first command for what to do, okay? Not because those commands are unimportant, but because John is doing something different. Related to that, less about repentance, more about believing. So um, Jesus and John came saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. John agrees with that, but he says, I'm telling stories that show how important it is to believe, to trust in Jesus. Okay, that's more key um, in in the way he's presenting Jesus. And he's doing that not just for people who aren't Christians yet, he's calling them to believe, but he's calling you and I if we already trust in Jesus. He's calling us to grow in belief as well. So there's more things we could talk about it, about differences between John and the Gospels, but these kind of give us a feel for how John is doing something different to reveal Jesus to us. What's in John? OK. So four main parts I'll kind of move through this quickly, but four main sections to John. It's very well-organized, beautiful patterns that we'll see as we go through the Gospel of John. First is what's called the prologue, the first 18 verses, and this is all ideas. No story yet, big ideas. The, Jesus is called the Word. The Word is with God. The Word is God. Um, the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. He reveals God to us. I'm going to not spend much time on that because that's Robert, Pastor Robert's going to do that next week. What he does, though, is those ideas about Jesus and about the world, not just Jesus, but in, especially in the middle, about two responses to Jesus, those are then seen in the rest of the book. Every scene in John shows you that those first 18 verses were correct. Um, every, uh, each one of them shows you some aspect of that. I just gave you one example. Um, <clears throat> in the prologue, it says that in him was life, and the life was the light, revelation, revelation, so when Jesus heals the blind man in chapter 9, that's a picture, a depiction of the fact that Jesus is the source of light, the source of truth, the source of understanding God. And that happens over and over again. The second part is often called the book of signs, so chapters 1 through 12. And the reason it's called that is because here's where we get the seven signs. Okay, seven miracles um, kind of clustered together with conversations with Jesus and sermons. And each of these reveal Jesus' identity then, interestingly, the rest of the book focuses on just a few days of Jesus' life, the last night of his life, and his death, and his resurrection appearances, chapters 13 through 20. This is often called the book of glory, and it's a good title. The word glory appears over and over again in chapters 13 through 20, and what Jesus does in this section is he reveals his own glory, and he reveals the Father's glory. First, he does that by teaching in the upper room, the night before he dies and then he reveals his glory on the cross. He is glorified on the cross and his glory is revealed in his resurrection um, at the end in chapter, the resurrection appearances in chapter 20. Now the, the, in the Gospel of John, the glorification of Jesus focuses on the cross. That's a key idea to pick up, is that uh, when, you see, when you see language throughout the Gospel, when it says Jesus is lifted up, you say, whoa, great, he's lifted up, isn't that great? He's glorified, isn't that great? Well, yes, it is great, it's wonderful, it's a fabulous part of God's plan, but the focus is on the cross. That's where he's glorified, that's where he's lifted up, where he accomplishes God's purpose. Final section of John is the epilogue, um, chapter 21. Uh, Jesus has his last meal. He has a breakfast with his disciples on the beach, and he commissions them to carry on his mission. Jesus' mission is accomplished. He finishes it. He says it is finished on the cross, but the mission is now transferred to his disciples um, on the beach in a, at a, a breakfast meeting. Um, so those are kind of the main parts of the Gospel of John that you can look for as we go through. So what does John John say about Jesus? I told you at the beginning, this book is all about Jesus, and he tells it with the whole goal is to say, I want you to understand the identity of Jesus, not just what he did, but who he is. So what does he say about Jesus? So uh, first, the prologue tells us the first few verses, Jesus is God, he's also from God, and he also becomes fully human. Now, again, I don't have to do this exhaustively because that's next week's sermon, okay, from Pastor Robert. Um, But one of the things that John is concerned about is that we hold on to all three of those ideas, okay, where Christians tend to just grab one of them. Mostly Christians grab onto the first one, he's God, and they kind of stop there. But in the Gospel of John, he's also from God. In fact, over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, Jesus says things like, I don't say anything unless I hear it from the Father, The Father sent me, and I'm going to carry out his mission. I don't do anything unless I see the Father doing it. So he is sent by God to accomplish God's purposes. In fact, I think uh, there's a verse from the Old Testament that I think um, heavily influenced how John phrased it. Isaiah 55, 11, uh, God is speaking, and he says, you know, the rain falls, and then it evaporates and goes back up again. And he says, so shall my word be, which goes forth from me, and it does not return to me until it accomplishes its purpose. God says, my word leaves me, it does its job on the earth, and it comes back to me, which is the picture of the gospel of John. Jesus is the word of God who comes into the world, does God's purposes, and comes back to him. So Jesus is the one who is sent. He becomes fully human. You're gonna see in John more language about Jesus being tired and hungry and thirsty and grieved because John is insistent this was real humanity. It's not fake. It's not just a Jesus suit. He doesn't just appear to be human. He really is. He really takes on full humanity. Second big truth. We could pick out a bunch, but I had to pick out just a few. Jesus is the source of truth. This is gonna come up over and over again in the Gospel of John. Jesus, in fact, says his classic saying in the Gospel of John is truly, truly, I say to you. And he says it even before he starts, to let everybody know I'm gonna say something true to you. I'm speaking the truth, he says. Jesus uh, on time, at times will say, I'm gonna call witnesses to prove that what I'm saying is true. The Bible, the Old Testament is a witness for me. John the Baptist is a witness for me because I'm telling the truth. My, my deeds, my, my miracles, those are witnesses that I'm telling the truth. There's a huge emphasis on Jesus as the source of truth. He truly reveals the Father to us. And, and it's such... The statement that Jesus reveals the truth is so true that Jesus doesn't just say, I speak the truth. He says, I am the truth. I am the truth. Um, And so Jesus is the source of truth, and knowing him, of course, means we know the truth, and the truth sets us free, as John tells us. Another big idea about Jesus is, and this is the one that I find that permeates almost every scene in the Gospel of John, is Jesus is the source of life for those who believe. Jesus is the source of life for those who believe. Scene after scene reveals this truth. Now the prologue says it. In him was life. Jesus is the source of life. Um, But then multiple scenes depict this. Jesus in John 10 says, I'm the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the life of the sheep so that they can live uh, Jesus says, I'm the door for the sheep, too. He likes to do lots of different pictures. He's the shepherd and he's the door. What happens to the sheep who come in through the door? Jesus. They receive life. Um, <clears throat> the vine and the branches. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Stay attached to me and you'll produce fruit. The word life isn't there, but what's the whole picture? The vine gives life to the branches. Jesus uh, heals in John chapter four. There's a, um, an officer, royal officer, and his son is about to die. And this, the sh- very short story, three times, Jesus says, your son lives, which means literally he will live. Physically he will live. But the point of the story is Jesus is the source of every kind of life for those who believe. <clears throat> that life is not just it's it's multifaceted. It's not just the one thing you might think of. So, of course, it's eternal life. We're going to have the phrase eternal life all over John. Jesus is the source of eternal life. When Lazarus dies, Jesus talks to Mary and Martha about the fact that they can receive eternal life through Jesus. But it's also overflowing, abundant life. Jesus talks about being the good shepherd, and he says the the, the sheep receive abundant, overflowing life. It's, that's not just what happens to you when you die. Eternal life doesn't start then, it starts now. When we trust in Jesus, our eternal life begins, our abundant, fulfilling life. It's also a relational life. John 17, Jesus is praying and he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So life there is not about how long it is. Eternal life isn't about how long it is. It's about a quality. Knowing God, knowing Jesus is eternal life. And so Jesus calls us to experience that fulfilling abundant life right now. So John has a lot to say about Jesus, but he also talks about a response to Jesus. He talks about people, people and how they react to Jesus. You'll notice repeatedly in the Gospel of John that that, uh, we have conversations with Jesus and one other person, and they respond in positive or negative ways. John tells us in his prologue, there's two kinds of people, and I'm going to show you it over and over again through the whole Gospel, two kinds of people, okay? He says, there are people that I'm going to call the darkness, and they don't understand the light. They're the world, and they don't recognize that Jesus made the world. They don't respond to him. They misunderstand him. They don't believe him. They, they don't welcome Jesus. Then we also have, introduced in the prologue, we have people who are called the children of God. Later on, they're called the light or the children of light as well. And what, what's, what do they do? They welcome Jesus. They receive him. They believe in him. That's a picture of the Samaritan woman. Um, <clears throat> Every time you see Jesus talking with a person, one of the things John wants you to ask is, is this person a a picture of the darkness or the light? A picture of the darkness or children of God? Um, And are they moving in one direction or the other? So Nicodemus shows up, and at the end of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, he says to Nicodemus, "Um, you don't believe me. You don't receive me, and you don't understand me. So Jesus is pretty sharply saying That first one, Nicodemus is in the dark, but which way is Nicodemus moving? He's moving in the right direction. He actually comes to Jesus. And throughout the gospel, he shows up a few more times moving out of the darkness towards Jesus. The disciples and people like the Samaritan woman very quickly show that they're children of God. One of the things that happens with the Samaritan woman right in the next chapter, right after Nicodemus, is she quickly responds to Jesus and then she goes back into her town and says, Could this guy be the Messiah? quick response to light. In fact, John likes to play around with uh, giving us details that may help us picture this. When does Nicodemus come to Jesus? At night. When does he meet the Samaritan woman? Noon. It's bright daylight. It actually happened then, but the reason John tells us is so we can see. Look at the difference between at least first response, Nicodemus, and the Samaritan woman. So one of the things to ask yourself is, If you've already trusted in Jesus, you already are one of the children of God. You're already in that category, but it's still possible to move one way or the other. Are you looking more and more like the children of God that are described here, welcoming Jesus, trusting in him? Or are you moving more towards the darkness, failing to trust him, not welcoming him? Um, Because even the disciples, like Peter kind of moves in that direction for a while at the time of his denial. So which way are you moving? Because of that, John has two kind of appeals to us, okay? He wants us to believe. That may seem pretty obvious, especially in, in something in the Bible, it's believe, he calls us to believe. But the Gospel of John has the word believe 98 times. That's more than almost every, any other book in the New Testament. In fact, it's more than almost the whole rest of the New Testament put together. Um, so believing is absolutely essential, trusting in Jesus now it's very obvious that the first thing he's saying is if you don't believe in Jesus yet come to faith in him trust in what he claims about himself put your trust in Jesus as the source of life and you'll receive, you'll receive that life but John also wants us believers to experience the same thing when you came to Christ you believed in him maybe that was years ago what do you do today you trust in Jesus and you experience more of his life This is not something for back then. It is the rest of your life. Every day is what do I do today? Trust Jesus more, experience more of his life. That's one of the central messages of John and one that I've found the most compelling. There's also a a call to testimony, and I'll just quickly. uh, John is the witness. He wants us to believe in him, accept his testimony, but then he wants us to become witnesses to Jesus. That doesn't mean you have a sermon prepared, it means you point, look at that guy. John, you're going to see people say, "Come and see." I don't, I don't have much to say, but come and see. That's what the Samaritan woman says. Come and see this guy. That's what witnesses is, is. I know what, who Jesus is and what he did. John calls us to be witnesses to who Jesus has been in our lives. Okay. Last question. How should I read John? <clears throat> First one is read whole scenes, not just verses. You guys know the tw- of the 12 apostles, one of them was named Thaddeus, right? Thaddeus. Do you know what Thaddeus' job was? He held up the verse numbers while Jesus preached. 5-3, yeah. <laughs> blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> no, the verse numbers weren't added, right? They weren't around when Jesus was speaking. They weren't around when the Gospels were written. They weren't added until the printing press in about the 1560s, would you believe. People read the Bible for thousands of years with no verse numbers. So don't, don't try to make sense of a single verse. Read a whole scene. From the gospel and say, "What's going on in this whole scene?" And that's true of the whole Bible, but especially important here. Within the scene, pay attention to last words. How does Jesus end the scene? How does John, the narrator? How does he end the scene? Here's what interesting one. Samaritan woman. Samaritan woman looks like she's I mean, everybody else thinks she's a loser. How does the story end? Many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman. That's how John closes out the story of the woman. What's he telling us? This lady is a prime disciple of Jesus. She is a model of what it means to follow Jesus because she pointed faithfully to him. That's the last words in that scene. <clears throat> Look for how each scene pictures the big ideas from the prologue. I've kind of talked about that already. We've got all these big ideas from the prologue. Jesus is the source of light. He's the source of life. How does the scene show that Jesus is the source of life or light? How does it show that Jesus is the one who explains God? How does it show Jesus has come in the flesh? How does it show that Jesus is the one sent from God? John told us in the first 18 verses what his point was. So pay attention to him as you're reading the rest of the book. Look for How each scene foreshadows the cross. Over and over again, Jesus would say something or do something that was a hint that he was going to the cross. The people in the story don't know what he's talking about, but you and I do. He's talking to Nicodemus, and he says, you know what? Just as the serpent was lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that all who... Look, who believe in him may live. Nicodemus is thinking, what? But we know what that means. That wonderful gift that Jesus offers, the gift of life, the gift of the spirit in John chapter three, when he's talking with Nicodemus, comes about at the cost of the death of his son. So look for those foreshadowings. They happen in almost every scene in John. Two final questions. In every scene, ask yourself, and these are the questions that will engage your soul. What what does this passage, what does this scene teach me about who Jesus is? Now, I, I wrote not so much about imitation because in the Gospel of John, you can't be like Jesus. Okay? You, can, we, you and I cannot be the source of life for those who believe. You and I cannot be the I am. I can't be the good shepherd or the vine or any of those things. So in John, it's not so much about, hey, I'm going to be like Jesus. It's more like, whoa, I'm going to worship Jesus. So in every scene, what is John calling you to admire about Jesus? Can you admire him uh, together with John, with other believers as we read this? <clears throat> Second question, almost every scene there is a response to Jesus. There are people who respond positively or negatively. And John is saying, how are you responding to Jesus? What does this scene teach me about proper response to Jesus? Am I becoming more and more like that picture of the children of God? Am I becoming like that? What kind of person am I becoming? Or even though I am a children of God, I'm part of the children of God, am I moving away from that? Am I acting more and more like the darkness? Every scene invites us to do that. I'm about to pray, so why don't we uh, have the people taking the offering come up. <clears throat> the Gospel of John is a, a really rich, beautiful book. Um, the, the questions I've asked here, I think, have helped me over the years to be blessed the most by it, and um, uh, I think one of the big things to learn from, from this is not only those two questions I asked, but think back to who's writing this. The person writing this said, you know who I am? I'm a witness, and I'm loved by Jesus. Is that who you are? That's who we are today is we're people who are witnesses and we're people who are loved by Jesus and that defines us. Let me pray uh, for the offering and for this passage, for this book of the Bible. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the the book of John. What a powerful book it is. um, Lord, because it is a faithful witness to Jesus. We wanna be better worshipers of Jesus. We wanna respond better to Jesus. So Lord, I pray that this book will work deeply in our lives. We pray also that you bless the offering as we take it. In Jesus' name, amen.